Good morning, Covenant College. Um, turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Philippians chapter 3. We've encountered Jesus in worship, and now we want to encounter him together in the Word. I'm going to read from verse 12 uh, through the end of the chapter and including the first verse of chapter 4. Listen carefully. This is God's holy and inerrant word for us. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already obtained. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Pray with me. Father God, as the waters nourish the ground, so we pray that your Holy Spirit, working by and with the word, would refresh our hearts, that we would not only encounter you in worship and in chapel, but that we would pursue you with all of our heart and strength and mind all the days that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Name, address, tribe. I was at the downtown Dar es Salaam Traffic Police Bureau. Our house had been robbed. Among other things, they had taken our driver's licenses, so I had to go in and apply for new ones. Uh, the tall desk sergeant towered over me, and he pointed at the ledger in front of me and said, name, address, tribe. And he said, sergeant, I'm an American. I don't have a tribe. And he said, nonsense, son. Everybody has a tribe. You just don't know who your people are. I've been thinking about that ever since that day. Uh, we live in a cultural context 
that perhaps for the first time in history has taken expressive individualism to its logical implication that our identities are socially constructed, that we can be whoever, whatever we want to be. The Apostle Paul, if he were here this morning, would say, wait just a minute. You have a people. You belong to someone. You are the people that Christ Jesus has taken hold of. And because that's true, you need to press on as you pursue the calling in Jesus. Uh, you need to run this race together. And you need to stand firm until you see his face at the consummation of all things. First of all, Paul says in verses 12 to 16 that we are to press on. Uh, the context for his words is found in verses 7 to 11. Paul says, listen, I look at my past life, the things that gave me worth and identity, uh, my PhD from Gamaliel University in rabbinics, my family name, my socioeconomic status, uh, the respect that I received as a rabbi among rabbis, all of that I count as rubbish. For the sake of knowing and being found in Jesus Christ, oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, being conformed to him in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul says that's what life is all about. And then in verse 12, he says, look, I haven't already obtained this. I haven't become perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Notice that his confidence is not in his ability to hang on to Jesus. His confidence is grounded in the fact that Jesus is holding Paul in the grip of his grace. And he's never going to let go. And so Paul says... I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold, but one thing I do. In the original, it's just but one, right? One focus, one overriding purpose of my life. I forget what lies behind. I strain for what lies ahead. And I press on towards the goal of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm going to forget all the things that I used to base my value on. Accomplishments, achievements, tradition, reputation. All of that is behind me. I'm going to forget about my past failures. Uh, surely at times he would remember holding the coats as Stephen was stoned to death. Paul says, I'm going to put that behind me. I'm going to press on towards what lies ahead. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is this prize that he's talking about? Well, Moise Silva says it's nothing less than the culmination of salvation. So however you want to think about that, peace with God, eternal life, sanctification in its fullness. Paul is thinking of all of those things all at the same time. Everything that we have in Christ in whom all the Riches and treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection in my life. So I'm going to forget what lies behind. I'm going to press on. Beloved, it is so important that you don't look behind as you run the Christian race. 
you may have heard somewhere along the line uh, that the person that broke the four-minute mile was Roger Bannister, medical researcher from Australia working uh, at the UK in a hospital. He uh, worked his job in the morning, caught the noon bus to the track, ate a cheese sandwich, strapped on his spikes and on his cinder track, just broke the four-minute mile, just like that. A few months later, another Australian by the name of John Landy did the same thing. So the decision was made they should run against each other. August 1954, British Commonwealth Games. Landy and Bannister go off at the gun. Three and a half laps in, Landy is leading by 10 yards. Now, if you're a runner, 10 yards might as well be 100 miles. No way he could possibly catch him. Except that at that moment, John Landy looked left to see where Bannister was. And Bannister swept by him on the right. I'm in the grip of his grace. And in the name of Jesus, get off the track. I've got a race to run. You don't look back at the things that the world used to define you by. You look at who you are. And you run toward his arms. And Paul says, hold on to that which you have already attained. What does he mean? Well, union with Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. You belong to Jesus. You're part of his body, the church. Hang on to that truth. Let it grip your life and your heart and not let go. Yesterday, I picked up my two-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter, Isla, at Mom's Day Out. And I bent down and stuck out my arms, and she ran at me with the force of a speeding locomotive. And she grabbed me around the neck more tightly than I ever felt her grab me before, as if she was holding on for dear life. And I thought to myself, with her burrowing her head into my shoulder, you're holding on for dear life, but love you, what you don't understand is that I will love you forever and always and I will hold you in my big, strong arms, and I'm never, ever going to let you go. Beloved, that's a picture of the Father's love for us in Jesus Christ. Paul says, celebrate it, press on into it. Don't let anything or anyone stop you as you run the race. Growing up, my long-distance running heroes were all from East Africa. Um, my favorite, John Stephen Aquaria, Tanzania, 1968. So far back, you can't even imagine that they had Olympics then, but they did in Mexico City. 75 people started the marathon, 57 finished. John Stephen Aquari finished an hour and five minutes after everybody else. Here's what happened. At 19 kilometers, there was a jostling in the pack. He was knocked down. His right knee was dislocated. He badly injured his shoulder. And if it had been me or you, we probably would have caught the bus. But he stuck his knee back into place, and he got up and hobbled and ran and jogged to the finish line. Of course, the news reporters heard about this, and they were there to take pictures. And one of them thrust a microphone in his face and said, what were you thinking? You couldn't win. What was the point? And John Stephen Aquari said, my country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me to finish it. Beloved, Jesus hasn't taken hold of you for you to start the race. He wants you to finish it, to run into his arms at the end of the day. Faithful is he who has called you. He's going to bring it to pass. 
But then Paul says, not only do we press on um, after encountering Christ, we press on into him, but we also run together. This is a team sport. Look at what he says in uh, verse 17. Join with others in following my example. Paul says, as you follow Christ, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, look around you. See the brothers and sisters God has given you. Focus in on those who are following hard after Jesus, and you pace yourself with them. And I have to tell you, you have the most extraordinary opportunity while you're here. Uh, you get to look at staff and administration and faculty, and you could pick any of them to be a mentor to you. You could, as Jay Green says, learn to think like Dr. Green. Follow Dr. Green as he follows Jesus. Or follow Robert Beale as he follows Jesus. Or Barbara Beckman. Or Stephanie Formenti. Or Amy Bagby. Learn to pray like Dan McDougall. Learn to hope like Dr. Finch. Learn to realize the glory of being in Christ by being part of the body. And look, I hate to name anyone because I need to name everyone. But find someone. Pattern your life after them. Let them disciple you. And then your friends. You want to find brothers and sisters who will spur you on in the race to pursue Jesus. Paul gives a warning here. He says, be on guard. There are enemies of the cross of Christ in the church. Uh, these aren't the Judaizers of earlier in chapter 3. Uh, these are men who are governed by visceral appetites. Paul describes them as being totally focused on this world. They're enemies of the cross. They want nothing to do with Jesus. Paul says, steer clear of men and women like that. You want to find brothers and sisters who love the Lord, who will challenge you to love and follow him too. We run this race together because at the end of the day, it's a team sport. We're the body of Christ. Maybe you missed it, but two weeks ago, tomorrow, um, October 12th, 2019, you heard it here, Elliot Kipchoge, a Kenyan marathoner, broke the two-hour record. Yes, I know there's some controversy about it not being a sanctioned marathon, but get past that. Just think about this for a minute. 26.2 miles. He averaged 434 for 26 miles. If you're a runner, that seems impossible. That's 68 seconds for every 100 meters. Just in case you're wondering, right? But here's the thing. He didn't do it alone. Uh, there was a pace car that was helping him keep up the right pace that he needed to finish under two hours. There was a phalanx, a, a flying bee of runners that kept swapping out to help run ahead of him not so much so he could draft them, but so that they could cheer him on, and there were people cheering him the entire 26 miles. That's a picture of how we run the Christian race. If you've ever run the Scots Trot, you know what it's like. You're, you're coming around that last lap, right, on the field, and as you're coming in, everybody is cheering. It doesn't matter whether you're first 
Well, if you're first, nobody's cheering. But if you're the last, it doesn't matter. People are still cheering you on. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews 12 points us to when he says, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Beloved, we run this race together. We press on, but we press on into Jesus with our arms locked at one. And then Paul says, mixing his metaphors, stand firm in the already and the not yet. Down in verse um, 20, he says, our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, we're not like those who are just cynical and dismissive and mocking things of the faith. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And we eagerly await a savior from there, Jesus Christ Jesus, whose name means salvation, who is both Kyrios Kai Christos, he is Lord, he is God, but he is God who has taken on human flesh and become Messiah, the promise of the ages, the desire of every nation, that Jesus is coming back, and here's what he's going to do. He's going to transform our bodies of humiliation, our lowly, broken bodies into his glorious body. Listen, beloved, I've been around here my 15th year, long enough to know that there are people in the room today and throughout our community that are battling chronic illness. And on days like today, when it's cold and it's wet, it takes all the energy you have just to get out of bed and move. There are brothers and sisters in our community that have battled cancer or are even now battling cancer without any guarantee of the prognosis. There are many among us who wrestle with addictions of various kinds and with depression and anxiety that threatens to cripple. And we all cry out, Lord, how long? And Paul says, stand firm. I know you can't see it fully yet. But Jesus who died, more than that was raised to life. The one that's praying for you by name at the right hand of the Father, he's coming back. And when he returns, he's going to make everything new, and he's going to wipe away every tear, and he's going to restore shalom to your body, and you will be whole in a way that you've never experienced before. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Wait with eager expectation, because it's going to happen. Uh, do you remember what it was like in fourth grade, the night before the last day of school? Right? The summer stretching out before you. Endless opportunities for adventure, for hanging out with friends, for going on trips with the fam. Everything you could dream of. I would get so excited I wouldn't sleep the entire night. Right? Just waiting for that day to come. Could we look at the coming of the Lord like that? I know in the PCA we're not big into eschatology. I'm not asking you to tell me your millennial views. I'm not even sure what mine are. But I will say this, you and I should wake up every morning and say, Holy Spirit, help me to live today as if it's the last one I have. As if Jesus were coming back at the close 
that I would passionately pursue Jesus, that I would run with my brothers and sisters, that I would pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, by the power of your spirit, make that a reality today. You and I can't drum that up. We can't talk ourselves into it. But the Holy Spirit longs to help us live with that kind of eager expectation. And Paul says, my brothers and sisters, you are dearly loved. You are cherished. This is how you should stand firm, even when the evidence seems to be against it. Because we know that God never lies. And Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon. You have to be careful what books you read. I read a book when I was your age called Endurance by Alfred Lansing. Uh, it was a book about the worst explorer that ever lived. His name was Ernest Shackleton. Every single one of his expeditions was an utter failure. Yet, he was perhaps the greatest leader of men uh, ever to set out to do great things. He brought every single one of them back alive. 1915, the British Trans-Antarctic Expedition. They were going to cross the continent, but they never got there. Uh, before they could get to Antarctica, the endurance was trapped in the pack ice and crushed. And so here was Shackleton and his crew on the sea ice. They had three boats, whale boats, that they put sledging runners on. And between November 1915 and April 1916, they traveled across the ice and camped out until they found a little tiny speck in the South Atlantic called Elephant Island. Because the Antarctic winter was coming on, they turned over two of the boats, made a hut for most of the crew to winter in. Shackleton took the other boat and with two companions, sailed 720 miles by dead reckoning through the worst oceans on earth, a feat that it took another 100 years to repeat. The National Geographic team did it with GPS and got to South Georgia Island, the nearest settlement that they could find. But they landed on the wrong side of the island. So in sea boots, they had to climb up to 4,500 feet on glaciers and make a 32-mile exposed traverse down the ridge. When they finally got to the whaling station, it was 4,500 feet below them. They had no ropes. They had no crampons, no ice axes. So they sat on their backsides and slid down the glacier and prayed for the best. Shackleton got down, uh, dusted himself off, marched into the whaling master's office and said, my name is Shackleton, can I borrow a boat? And then he passed out for 48 hours. <laughs> when he came to, they gave him a boat. He tried twice to get in and rescue his men, but the sea ice kept him out. Finally, in August 1916, he was able to sail into the bay and the men were there waiting on the shore and they quickly loaded them up before the ice could close in. But it wasn't until the next day that he went to his first officer who had been left in command, Frank Wilde. And he said, how did you know I was coming? And Frank said, well, I, I didn't. But every morning after breakfast, I'd say to the men, roll up your sleeping bags. Get ready, the boss may come today. And we would go out and stand and watch for your return. Beloved, you and I need to be watching. He's coming back. He's given us glorious work to do in so many different disciplines. But we are called as his people, not only to encounter him in that initial meeting 
with Jesus, but to pursue him, pressing on, standing together, standing firm as we await his return. Pray with me. Father God, when I look at these men and women and think of the potential for the kingdom and to change the world, it leaves me almost breathless. I pray, Lord, that you would enable them by your spirit to press on even when it's hard. Father, that you would enable them to run together with brothers and sisters and mentors who know you and love you and who can encourage them in their faith. Cry with them when they weep. Rejoice with them when they celebrate. And stand together in your truth as we await that great day when Jesus will come back and make all things new. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.